So Roger and Rena, both, that takes me to, so as an individual at work, I find out that my colleague is neurodivergent. What would be some ways of being, some things I could do that would be useful rather than what Roger's experienced in some cases? Well, for a start, don't say that everyone's on the spectrum because got that one <laughs> fundamentally ableist thing to say. Essentially, what you're you know it, that statement means that that person is uncomfortable, yeah. uh, and generally things which you, which we don't understand um, are, are what make us uncomfortable. So I think we've got to make sure that if you want to be a supportive colleague, you do not expect that the neurodivergent person is responsible for educating you in the same way it is not the responsibility of black asian and other global majority people to do all the education on anti-racism you have to take ownership to learn a bit yourself and as a minimum learn what is it what is the right language you know what is a neurotype what is um what is the difference between neurodivergence and neurodivergent there are countless articles and posts that will take you about two minutes to read on linkedin that will give you in one image kind of clear language there's so many um incredible people that post um hints and tips do this don't do that you know for me, make it your business to spend five minutes a day to learn if you really care about it you will do that without even thinking you know or follow these people because then their their content will um, come up in in your feed but don't expect that the responsibility of your education lies on you know the other person yeah. um, i feel like i really should hand the mic to roger here to share what would be super helpful I, no sorry sorry I, i'm just thinking through what what you were saying and the take ownership learn ask questions don't make your first response a a a, a kind of slap down or a leveling or a kind of you know let's get, are you we're not we're not i'm not no one in any of these situations or any of the cases it nobody's attempting to build a barrier between themselves and the other person they're just trying to be clear and and find the best way of making relationships work and when you're faced with something like neurodiverse or neurodiversity questions ask questions how else are you going to find out because there's such a range of things and what is it you like and what is it you don't like and what, what what well actually it's kind of all a bit new to me now then that's the answer and and we can work on it together but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I, 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 honestly this has been incredible to to see the work that you're doing and understanding the work from that perspective is is just incredible. Yeah, uh, and I didn't realize I was going to become as integral to this conversation as it as it as it has. But it but uh, but I'm really joyful about the fact it's come that way. So me too, me too. So listeners, what one thing that I'm taking away from this conversation and something that we do also ask all of our clients to do as individuals in the workplace is to do your own research. Now, the thought of that can be really overwhelming, you know, the thought of, oh, I've got to understand about race and LGBTQIA plus plus and this and that, like that can be overwhelming. So have compassion for yourselves, I would say, and 
you know, when you find yourself in a situation that you want to be supportive, or you might find yourself in a situation where you've tripped up and made a mistake, that's the time where you want to go and learn about whatever that underrepresented group is. And that's the way you can personally break the wheel of power and privilege. Rena, would you say I've said that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, you know, it's not an overnight thing. Um, yeah. We are all so steeped in society, in ableism, racism. It's, it's part of the air we breathe yeah. that it's work. It takes active work to unpick ourselves out of it. So we have to practice that self-compassion. If we start from the position that we have biases, many of them, and they'll show up in different ways, yeah. then we can have to, then we can move out of the am I, am I not, and just look at how can I be more of an ally. Exactly. And if you don't know what the barriers and struggles are of other groups, mm. you're never going to be able to empathize and be able to be an ally in a room where things are being discussed, you're not going to be thinking, okay, how is this going to impact that group of people, whether they're neurodivergent, whether they're parents, whether they're whatever they are. Yeah. So you need to familiarize yourself. And that just means, you know, really just exposing yourself to some of that content. That doesn't mean reading all of the extensive research and literature. Part of the work of people like myself and many others is taking that research and putting it into a digestible LinkedIn post exactly. that you can read in five minutes. So Exactly. So the lesson is, you know, make it case by case and do your work, do the work. Um, Rina, I want to finish this conversation with what inspires me most about you. And that's how you as a parent have found out and then dealt with and created this amazing environment for your boys. So I'd love you to share with us some of that. So I'm going to try not to over romanticize. I had to really have a bit of a reckoning. And I think one of the key triggers for that was when Evie was suspended from school at the age of four and a half. Um, as someone who has grown up as an Asian in this country from parents who were immigrants, my father used to work as a petrol pump attendant. My mom went to night school to learn how to be a secretary. For them, education was everything. And they put all of their hopes into me. I became a lawyer as, you know, and much to their delight. Um, and it was all about kind of education. So for me, when Evie was suspended at the age of four and a half, that was that shook me to my very core because it was everything I ever knew about what provided safety and security in life. But what that did was really make me evaluate how I was going to parent them. Being from an Asian background, my father was very, very traditional, very strict. You just obeyed. You didn't question. Um, you know, I wasn't even to make eye contact at times. If you know we're having a serious conversation, if you maintained eye contact for too long, it was considered rude. You know, there were all of these kind of ways of being that had been instilled in me, and I realized this wasn't working for Evie. The more I placed my demands on what a good child looked like, the more I could see this child was never going to subscribe to that. So I had to really critically look at which parts of my parenting did I want to keep? Which parts do I have to just say this isn't working for us? And a lot of that meant I had to stand up in my own power. And as a woman, that took a lot of strength to be able to say to someone, no, I will not attend your event because and not making excuses because my son 
who is autistic is going to struggle or saying, I will attend, I would love to attend, but you need to give me a seat on the aisle. You need to give me space for Evie to run around. And you need to appreciate that I won't be there for the whole thing. I'll come at this time for the important bit, but I'll be leaving at that time because it impacts his sleep. You know, compared to when I was younger and we would just, my parents would find chairs at the back of the room wherever we were and we just fell asleep and they collected us at the end of the night. It, you can't do that with a child who's sensitive to noise, who needs their space, who needs the routine to give them that stability. So I had to completely transform my parenting style and make it much more conscious and needs-based. Um, and that's what I did. And the, you know, the, the result is that Evie is thriving. Like he's, you know, academics are not the measure I would use, but he is academically thriving. He loves to act and sing. He's even made friends. And this was a child who couldn't stand to be around other children. Um, he had, he couldn't, he had speech sound delay, but his sounds have all, um, you know, developed fully. Last week, he, um, ran in the elections for head boy for his school. You know, he's doing amazingly. But I, when I look back and I think if I hadn't changed how I parented him, if I tried to shoehorn him into what a stereotypical traditional Asian boy should behave like, I would have broken his spirit and he wouldn't be the self-confident child who owns his autism. I told him he was autistic when he was six, he didn't quite get it. I told him again when he was seven, it made sense. And I think it was the age of eight, he did a presentation to the year group around what it means to be autistic and why, how proud he is of it and um, you know the strengths and challenges that come with that. So in our house, we own it, we you know value it um, and, we, and we tell people about it, but it took a lot for me to shift within myself for us to, to get there, but I'm super glad I did. So beautiful, so beautiful, thank you. So, we're coming to the end of our formal conversation. And Rina, what are three things that you'd love to leave our audience with? So I think if we're talking about um, workplaces, because I'm, I'm conscious that that's probably your predominant audience, I think firstly, flexibility. So be flexible and accommodating when you're working on group projects or setting deadlines. Understand, for example, that parents of neurodivergent children might need to adjust their schedules and don't draw inferences on their capabilities or their commitment levels because they require that level of flexibility. And the same goes for neurodivergent um, you know, colleagues too, because it takes a huge amount of vulnerability to disclose or to share what your needs are. And then for you to use that against them really un un is very undermining and, and can be quite traumatizing. Um, secondly, educate yourself. I think we've kind of covered this, but take the initiative to educate yourself about neurodiversity and you know the specific needs of of the most predominant neurotypes, at least. So autism, ADHD, dyslexia, for example, because having that knowledge will actually enable you to be a source of support. And judging by prevalence rates, there's going to be someone in your life, whether they know it or not, who is neurodivergent. Um, and make sure you're checking your language, um, that it's not ableist. The number of times I've, I've heard someone say to me when I've said, oh, my son's autistic and they've said, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, well, I'm not, you can be, but I have, it's the biggest, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me um, to have a child uh, that's autistic. So, you know, that that's no, they're, they're, again, plenty of resources that tell you, uh, you know, what inclusive language looks like. And then finally, I would say, just be an ally. You don't have to be neurodivergent to be an ally for the neurodivergent community. Um, 
when you're in a room, when meeting schedules are being circulated, when programs are being designed, ask yourself consciously, who might this impact? Who can we check in with to make sure that marginalized groups are not inadvertently disadvantaged by what we're proposing to do? Um, that would be my kind of three top tips. It's really helpful, listeners. Please do take what Rena's asked you to do and put that into practice. It'll make a huge difference to your neurodiverse colleagues, but it'll also make a huge difference to you. So, Rena, this is the fun part of the podcast. The whole thing has been fun, but I've got some some quick fire questions for you now. Are you ready? I, I think I'm ready. I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. So my first question is, what's your favourite indulgence? Oh, chocolate. <laughs> Ditto. Chocolate and then followed by chocolate and maybe some more chocolate. Dark chocolate in particular. Dark first, right? <laughs> yeah. With fruit and nuts or not? Both. Any. Any. Any yeah. chocolate. I've got some for you. I was in Dubai last night and I bought some special chocolates. We have to see each other soon so I can give them to you. I, I went to Bruges uh, earlier this year and tried some of the best Belgian chocolate. I, I literally can remember the flavour. It was that impactful. Um, yeah. Amazing. And I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Who's inspired you most to do what you do? It would definitely be Evie. You know, until I... Before I had Evie, I was really subscribing to very much the model minority stereotype, the, the being the person that everyone else wanted to be, me to be the perfect daughter, the perfect sibling, the and so the list goes on. And to the point where I, I, I don't think I even knew my own true identity and purpose as a human. And having Evie's diagnosis, as painful of, as all the challenges have been, forced me to really look at what I valued in life and who I wanted to be as a person. And I'm so grateful for that because I can now, I work with passion uh, in work that I'm so thoroughly uh, enjoying and engaged in with a vision to create neuroinclusivity globally. Um, and I wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him. Amazing. I completely get that. Now, if you had unlimited resources to put together the ultimate resource for ensuring equity and inclusion in an organization, what would that be? I would say um, having means to tailor your uh, productivity measures or whatever it is around the specific needs of your staff individually, having a facility whereby parents of neurodivergent children can um, receive some sort of respite that doesn't mean that it's taken out of their annual leave or their dependence leave or their sick leave um, that recognizes the additional pressures that that parents of neurodivergent um, uh, children face you know all hand in hand with things like um, uh, specific uh, special educational needs clubs and groups and things that, that the kids can go to because there is a this huge shortage. If you ask any parent of a neurodivergent child how they coped in the summer holidays, they will tell you what a struggle it is to find places 
where their children are accepted and in, where they can be engaged in an activity, where they can be, you know, where especially where for those children who need a bit more support. Um, yeah, gosh. Um, that would be great, right? Yeah, the list just, the wish list goes on. Yeah. Wonderful. So, sadly, we've come to the end of our podcast conversation. Rena, thank you so much for sharing those nuggets with us. And Roger, thank you so much for being my co-host here. Roger, anything you'd like to say in summing up today? Um, it's been enlightening for me having this conversation. My my grandson um, is autistic and um, doing very, very well in school. And, it, and it's interesting, um, as yet does not know he's autistic. He just sees himself as being one of the one of the students participating, but he just seems to be exceptional at maths and exceptional at at English. Um, and it's interesting what you said about saying, you know, we told him, and then he was owning it and accepting it. And I I think that's an interest a really interesting point that I'm gonna. I'm going to have to discuss with my daughter and, I, and to see it, what, what what's the timing on that. But everything, I just applaud you for everything. I know how challenging it is in my family, so it's it's an amazing achievement to to deal with the situation. And as you said, so fulfilling as well, which which is which is just incredible. Getting it right is so fulfilling. So listeners, I think you've had a whole bunch of ideas, triggered some ideas in your minds about what you can do. When you find yourself um, chatting to a colleague who's neurodivergent or you feel like, hey, I want to I make a difference in this area, please do follow some of the guidance that Rena has given you here. And um, as I say, Rena, thank you again so very much for joining us. And I'm sure we could have 10 episodes on this subject. And maybe we'll do another one again soon. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode on how to break the wheel of neurodivergent power and privilege in the workplace. I hope you found it valuable. I look forward to hearing how you've applied some of the learning that was in this episode. And my huge thanks to Rena Anand and Roger Williams for joining me in this conversation, which went very deep and which looked at some very practical things that you can do. Do join us for the next episode in this series, series five of the Privilege Eruption podcast, in which we're looking at how to break the wheel of power and privilege in different aspects of working life. I am so excited that in our next episode, I will be speaking with the amazing Florence Williams. Florence plays rugby for the Saracens and for Wales and is an active advocate for equity and inclusion in sports. She'll be sharing a lot of her experience and some very practical things that she's doing in the space of sport that you can then take into your organisation to break the wheel of power and privilege. I look forward to seeing you then.